Hello and welcome back to the Sense of Place podcast. Now firstly, I'd like to thank Rob Shaw, MJ Betcho, Sydney, Scott Malthouse and Bobby Sill for their donations to my Kofi goal, which aims to raise the yearly fees to run and maintain this podcast. It cost me £136 a year for the hosting platform and website. And if everybody who gave the show a listen just donated £3, I know I could easily hit that target. Now, I know I'm no Joe Rogan with the downloads, of course, but I know I'm getting enough that I could cover these fees. So if you are enjoying the show, please do consider it. Um, At the time of recording, I'm 24% of the way through with the goal. If you can't afford it or you don't want a part with your coins, that's absolutely okay. But leaving a rating and review is another way you can help support me and the podcast. And do you know what? While I'm at it, I think I'll thank my two loyal patrons, David and Sam, because I do have a Patreon page as well. That is always there if you're interested in extras. Anyway, today's guest is archaeological researcher Rebecca Lambert. Now, Beck's research explores liminal spaces from an archaeological perspective, and she draws comparisons with the contemporary and the Neolithic period. And if you're wondering what the Neolithic period is, it roughly started around 10,000 BC. It was during the Stone Age, and it is marked by the introduction of agriculture, settlements, and megalithic monuments, so think stone circles like Avesbury, Stonehenge, and so forth. Beck has four interlinking projects, Dialects of the Hum, and the hum is basically the noise you hear from pylons, power stations and the like, Future Ghosts, Underpasses of Liminal Places, and Paranoid Architecture. So before we get into today's episode, I'll give you a rundown of some of the things we discuss. Firstly, where Beck's love of liminal spaces stemmed from, and her deep connection to pylons and the hum future ghosts and its effect on archaeology of the future. The positive community engagement with the Underpasses Eliminal Places project. And finally, Paranoid Architecture, which looks at Ballardian concepts within a Neolithic context. So there we go, we'll crack on with today's episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. I think it's fair to say there is a thread of liminality running through all your projects and before we do discuss them I think the best place to start would be at the beginning and where did this love of the liminal stem for you like how did it all begin? Well um, so I've got four projects going at the moment but I, I guess it really kicked off in early childhood. I had a bit of a difficult upbringing um and um I was bullied very badly at school and also at home um by a parent who subsequently left so what I would do to try and escape all this horridness um there was uh, a motorway flyover not far from my school at this time I uh, was living in Hampshire and it was a flyover for the M3. So I used to run to this flyover. I don't know why, although I have um, some thoughts. Um, And I used to just go and hide behind one of the pillars and I'd sit there with my back against the pillar. So there would be traffic on my ground level, which I couldn't see because it would be behind me. And I'd have the motorway 
flying over the top and I could hear all the sounds and the vibrations and I almost felt it's difficult to explain transported in a way and um and I felt safe there I really did and I was diagnosed later as um having a condition called synesthesia that manifests in lots of different ways for synesthetes my synesthesia primarily manifests in um, a thing called uh, tactile emotional synesthesia and very basically as I'm not a neurologist is that I can um, have very emotional violently emotional reactions both positive and negative to certain textures um, and and so on two of my positives are we have subsequently worked uh, concrete and stone. And it, it's very difficult to explain how these, um, I mean, I'm actually just thinking about it. My, my, my internal body is starting to warm up because the, the, the feelings are emanating. And it's, it literally, it almost feels like my heart is going to burst out of my chest with joy. And it brings tears to my eyes when I, when I touch these materials and things and I've been talking with friends and things about this uh, you know especially during lockdown and um, I, I'm i wondering if this condition isn't one of the reasons why I developed the, the, the sort of passions that I have you know this feeling safe within these spaces especially with concrete mm. surrounding me and and my 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 secondary synesthesia is a thing called um a sound color certain sounds and vibrations present to me as colors flashing before my eyes and yes music's one of those but um the hum this might sound very strange to people who uh, are unaware of this condition or or the hum which i will explain briefly uh in a wee bit but i can I can literally see it <laughs> as I come in across the parlance. And when I've been out with people and I've been out in the field within, you know, uh, the electric lay, I have scared some people because I am just completely lost. And it's not, I don't want them to be frightened. It's just, for me, it's like glorious. But yeah, I suppose if you, you're not seeing what I'm seeing, it, it could look quite um, scary. But yes, yeah, so this troubled childhood and things and I found these safe spaces and and also we had um, pylons uh, close to uh, the house where I initially grew up in spent the first part of my childhood and um, with my dad at that point we were living on our own my obsession with pylons definitely came from that and especially after me my my dad was he was as out there as I am. I think that's where I get it from, I, I reckon. But he said to me that, you know, pylons don't just pass any, uh, electric, electricity to different houses and things. He says they actually convey energy around the world. And for me, it was like, what? And he was like, yeah. He said, you look up at that pylon, you look up at those lines and all your energy, all your dreams, your hopes, he said, they go up into it and they travel around the world and they'll be felt by others that are doing the same thing and it's like wow and I started having these really crazy dreams where I was literally 
leaving my physical body and connecting in through the pylons with the rest of the world. So I was literally traversing along these electric lays to countries thousands of miles away, you know, living in a tiny wee house on the council estate in Hampshire. But in these dreams, I was going to Australia and China, America, you know, and, and in these dreams, I was sort of seeking out those others that my dad had mentioned who wanted to be set free from the bullies and the gossips who, you know, perhaps they were having to deal with every day. So I think that's where it initiated and and I was really well I think I was really lucky to have a dad who indulged <laughs> and encouraged these obsessions um with folklore and megaliths and and so on and um as time progressed they always underpasses flyovers pylons stayed with me but obviously when you when you're that young and even coming into adolescence and things I knew they were special but I couldn't articulate or fully understand why I initially um, began studying and practicing archaeology 18 years ago (laughs) and I immediately fell in love with the later prehistoric especially the Neolithic it just sang to me especially because as a kid I didn't live too far from Stony, uh, from Stonehenge, sorry, and Stone Circles and Avebury. And then we moved to the Isle of Wight and there's some just glorious prehistory on the Wight. And I started to formulate ideas that there could be connections. And um, as a lot of archaeologists will tell you, we, especially when we're studying um, within undergrad um levels and so liminality is mentioned a lot especially within prehistoric studies and and uh, it's almost like where we have the r words the word that nobody wants to say in ritual (laughs) when you don't know what it is we say liminality is kind of almost on the same level can get overused and perhaps misused but yes I started formulating ideas and then it was really only in the past couple of years that it really started to hit home I started I was living in London and I was starting to explore these landscapes and then the seeds of the underpasses liminal uh, places project started Mm. coming into mind this sense that the word liminal I mean to give some context for people who um, may not have read any of my stuff the word liminal is derived from the latin word for threshold excuse my pronunciation i I never did latin limon (laughs) and uh, it it can be considered within both physical and abstract contexts signifying things on the peripheries of everyday society um, and also to denote spaces amidst different strata of reality Liminal places can be described as borders between two defined spaces. And that's when I just started thinking about this, you know, because underpasses, they bear witness to ritual behaviours. See, I've said the R word again, sorry. Um, Drug taking, drinking, sexual encounters and communal gatherings, amongst other things. And these 
in their ways initiate feelings of euphoria with the hope of achieving altered states of consciousness you know of, of reality so to speak going back to the hum which I mentioned earlier the hum is liminal as well in the sense that it is almost like although it permeates as do um in close spaces um it is a border between two defined areas um that of the everyday and that of the other and stuff so um yeah wow that's quite an answer i mean you know the origins of how you got interested in it and i mean i did want to ask you you know you were saying you see colors and stuff yeah um with the part like what colors are they the same or different or how does it show itself to you well i mean so for me it's it's very difficult to explain um certainly i've only really concentrated on this within within the uk um at present so um looking up and since since childhood i've sort of seen now this might sound really cliched but i'm afraid i i can't answer for how my brain operates um but i see a kind of greeny purpley it's almost like a pulsating haze that's the only way it's i mean have you seen john carpenter's the fog no i haven't Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> if you ever get a chance to watch it, the way that the fog comes in off the sea into into uh, onto the land where the 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 film is set, that's how I see the hum, but with these beautiful purpley greeny hues. And this was one of the things that sort of got me thinking about dialects of the hum because. Um, before um, I was in lockdown, I, um, I'd been out wandering. I noticed that different wee substations and, and power hubs and that, they sound different. Y- you wouldn't notice it necessarily if you were just pootling along. But if you, if you stop, I rec- <laughs> this is a sad person I am, I stopped at each one and recorded them. And then when I got back, I was listening to it and it's like, they, they sound different. And I was thinking, well what if they've got different accents, different dialects? They obviously, well, I say obviously, they understand each other. And then that got me thinking, well, if and when I'm allowed back out in the world and I can get abroad and I consciously go looking for the hum, is it going to manifest to me in a a purpley green hue? Or is it going to look different because I'm in... A different country is it going to have a different dialect so to speak so that's something I'm think I'm really excited to explore but also then going back to that thing of the you know each of these hubs sounding different just to you know not for any enhancement but just to the the naked ear so to speak I started then thinking about um well, we're having this just within this short space of London. We'll, these dialects will exist throughout the UK. And what's to say there won't be even more different dialects throughout the world? And, um, and so this is when I started to conceive the dialects of the hum project. Um, there are many different dialects within the hum. 
dialects that can often conflict with each other, but connectivity is still maintained and, you know, the energy is constant. And, and I started to think about that within the context of not just um, where we are as a, the UK today, but the world, you know, because sadly um, for the UK, you know, we've, we're having to deal with Brexit and the rise of the populist far right. And this, you know, these two aspects, you know, they've led to real widespread antipathy towards, you know, people of colour, migrant workers, political refugees. And for me, these people, you know, all of them have their own dialects and they add to the country's overall positive energy and when I say they have different dialects I don't mean that just literally as in we have people living here who for who English isn't their first language I mean just who they are as people their energies and so these energies add to the country's overall positive energy and when these are combined for me these vernaculars create far more harmony than discord and you know, the events of 2020 and what's been happening even in the first few weeks of 2021, you know, they've left lots and lots of people feeling very isolated and afraid, you know, you know not just frightened because of the, you know, the C-19 pandemic, but also of technology too. How many stories have we seen in the news online over the past 12 months scaremongering over 5g energy resources and their production um you know the the covid vaccine having nanotechnology and so on um you know real fears but for me especially the fact i've been in since march 14th last year i've been in solitary isolation for I think it's about 240 days now. It's been broken up slightly by wee respites. But yeah, and so for me, this interment, so to speak, has has also highlighted just how important technology is, you know, because it's enabled the world to stay connected, um, not just through the internet, um, but through television and radio. And, you know, connectivity really is key. We're, we're together, although we're alone, so to speak. And, and for me, the hum, the concept of the hum opens up ideas about connections between people and landscape and technology, not just within our own neighbourhoods, so to speak, but, but regionally and nationally. Here's me going off on a tangent, but cosmically, you know, and um, for me personally, bringing it back to your first question my childhood dreams of you know traveling without moving so to speak connecting with people and lands throughout the world by ascending up into the hum for me they've finally been realized you know because the elect the electric lay you know that's allowed me to wander through the web and the twitterverse you know i'm now really lucky to have friends throughout the world through all the worry and 
and and sadness and and stuff you know it's it's sort it's allowed me to connect like in ways that I could only have dreamt of as a child and as well and uh you know um Ballard JG Ballard who is a writer that I really admire and uh, I read a lot of um he did an interview I think it was back in so either 2003 or 2004 and um so really the early the early kind of stages of the internet and and stuff and social media as we know it wasn't really occurring at that point and I'm going to paraphrase him really badly now so I'm I'm really sorry Mr Ballard if you're tuning in but um but he he basically said that um you know if if we are heading back into the dark ages so to speak of you know far-right activism and so on that he he believed that the the internet would offer illumination and and I believe him to be true because you know um if we didn't have the web and stuff lots of things that have occurred especially in the past year such as the black lives matter movement we we wouldn't have known just to the extent those initial protests were all over the place but within weeks you hardly saw them on social media certainly not on the news the state news and it was only because um people were recording these events um via video and 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 uh digital interviews and stuff and uploading them onto the internet that we were able to find out that protests were still taking place i mean they are still taking place within the us it's just that um there were certain bodies that would rather the rest of the world didn't know about these and and you know and, and the connectivity thing comes into play because by the rest of the world seeing what was occurring in the usa we then see huge marches around the world in support of the black lives matter protests and quite rightly so so again we have this connectivity and this also ties in with um stuff that i'm researching for the future ghosts project especially the digital stratigraphies aspect of that so for myself within what would i suppose for want of a better phrase traditional archaeology um we learn about not just past peoples and cultures but peoples today through excavating into soil into the soil into the ground as one way of doing that well i myself have been pondering this um for quite some time <laughs> i believe that you know the upsurge in people and not just through the lockdown but people using the internet um in order to conduct their pretty much general everyday lives you know these are all building into digital levels of strata accumulations within digital landscapes and for me i i now whether this is going to be probably not decades into the future but certainly i i would conject um centuries and you know perhaps even millennia if there are still people on the planet and indeed archaeologists i would strongly suggest that 
archaeologists of the far future would have ditched our more traditional tools such as uh, trowels and, and so on. And the excavations will take place primarily, if not solely, through computer screens. And the trowels would have been ditched um, in favour of advanced search engines. They will excavate, you know, and explore the digital detritus are being deposited already now, are present within these later digital landscapes, yeah. you know. And, and, and this stuff is building up hour by hour, day by day, year by year. And um, People are kind of leaving their legacy through their social media accounts, aren't exactly, they? Exactly, you know, and, and like where they go on holiday, what they wear, what music they listen to, what movies they watch, you know, because lots of people, you know, and even unconsciously are leaving their material culture, so to speak, within these landscapes. And, you know, I, I mean, I like to sort of think that um, archaeologists of perhaps the 22nd, 23rd centuries will almost act in like mediums, so to speak, and manipulating, <laughs> this, this might sound crazy, digital Ouija boards in order to access the spirits of those who've lived in the 21st century. And, and again, you know, so for me, this ties in with the hum and this liminality. So that's your, that's your future growths project, kind of looking at what will be, what will happen. Yeah, and that's and one aspect. And then it ties into that. Yeah. yeah, and that's one aspect of future ghosts. Um, another, I mean, another aspect, and, and this is something that I'm working on as well, um, is, the, is spectral landscapes within that. And again, this ties in not just with uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, but the archaeology of protests as a whole, but also homelessness. Because these are like very physically ephemeral concepts in the sense that certainly during... I mean, I'll use the Black Lives Matter protests because they're, they're hopefully still very fresh in people's minds. And uh, sadly, homelessness is, is around us everywhere. So starting with the protests we were seeing that, um, yes, the statues are being toppled, which was superb in my opinion. Um, but you were also finding that um, a lot of statues, um, statues of, of past peoples who had made considerable sums of the suffering of others through the slave trade, and they were being covered with graffiti and placards from protests were being left at their bases and so on and these thank goodness were being recorded by people photographed videoed uh so on and uploaded onto the net but then the flip side of that was literally that literally within 24 to 48 hours of very meaningful and symbolic acts these these traces were being swept away, sometimes by people who thought they were being well-meaning, that they wanted to just tidy up, you know, like a well-meaning auntie, or by people who sadly have racist agendas. By them removing that, if we didn't have this online connection, so to speak, those really important acts 
protests would have been lost forever. And also with um, and with homelessness, find uh, certainly where I live in East London at present, you know, the, the local councils are doing everything in their power to move people on, you know, not getting them rehomed or stuff, but just moving them on out of sight, out of mind. And again, so these these people are a very real risk of becoming invisible to the archaeological record. And um, and it's only through recording their lives, obviously with full consent, that they will be part of the record because, you know, they are human beings. They have hopes and dreams and, and you know, they deserve to be, you know, remembered. Do you know what? I, I do just want to throw a spanner in the works because no, I was kind of talking with Bob Fisher about this, oh, yeah. but do you not think that because websites die, websites change, you think the internet is a place that will never change and everything will be the same, but it isn't? old blogs old things they just go they die things aren't how they used to look so I kind of feel like the only way you could probably continue to record this is perhaps in your own record you're going to have to keep that record yourself of photos and information because who knows where Twitter will be in 30 years it might not exist anymore they could wipe it you know but I think think that's another thing yeah and I, I I see exactly where you're coming from on that and but I think as well that once I mean certainly platforms um can die so to speak as you say but they they will still remain um even though they might not be live they will still remain within those digital stratigraphies i mean look at myspace myspace went offline crikey how long ago it's well over a decade ago yeah it's ages wasn't it all those people who were part of myspace all the things that they uploaded onto that, it they're they're still there within the strata. It's just I suppose so it's kind of a case of will archaeologists in the future have the means to access this and look at it. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is and and, and you know these platforms going dark, you know, um ceasing to run in real time. It may it may not happen, but I do think that because they will be continuing to inhabit these these virtual vistas, so to speak, these spectral landscapes for themselves, dead but still living in a way, I I, I hope um, that they will be um, resurrected, for want of a better term, by archaeologists in the future. I mean, I'm not saying it will definitely happen. I mean, I, I'm... Um, you know, uh, prescience isn't one of my skills, unfortunately. But um, I like to think that 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 is a, a distinct possibility. I mean, it, I think it would have to be if we want to have a real picture of how the past was, unless they want it to be some sort of selected version. That's the only way. Because, like you say, I mean, the trowels thing and that—I don't know—it does feel like we're veering away from it a little bit. Yeah, which I, is kind of sad. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's quite fun doing digs, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, but I think, I mean, I haven't physically dug um, since twenty fourteen, I think. Yeah, mm. 20, and that was because I I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis um, 
yeah. back then. However, you know, and digging is great. And that connection with putting your trowel in the soil and then the trowel hitting something and, and yeah, the excitement is immense. But and this is a this is a <laughs> this is another sort of ongoing um thing within the archaeological community that I mean there's a standing joke you can put an archaeologist in a room by themselves and they'll start an argument um and um you know there there are some archaeologists who say that unless you get in a trench uh, or have ever been in a trench and physically dug then um you can't really call yourself an archaeologist now I myself personally I don't agree with that because archaeology is so vast and complex. There's so many. I mean, we have people who work primarily in in laboratories with post excavation finds and so forth. We have people who are focusing um, on digital landscapes um, through stuff that we've just been speaking about, but also through um video games the landscapes within video games and that is really exciting research i've got a number of friends who are focusing on these and it's fascinating you've also you know people who deal primarily with human and uh faunal remains um and flora uh, floral remains all sorts of things i mean there's so much i could i could go on for hours just listing all the different things Without all of these things in existence, archaeology wouldn't be what it is today. And the the strides that are going that have been made just in the past five, ten years on things like not just dating techniques of um physical um finds and so on, but you know, um strides that are going forward in areas that I don't fully understand myself. Um, you know, like we're saying, digital and so on and public engagement um all sorts of i mean it's really exciting even today um certainly with dating techniques we can date things that and date them highly accurately mm-hmm. in a way that couldn't have been done 15 years ago and so and, and and for an archaeologist that's like a blink of an eye so 15 years into the future it's going to be even more exciting what we can do as a collective you know everyone coming together as like a little cog in this big huge archaeological machine 50 100 years 500 years I I mean crikey I mean it's so exciting the only thing I'm really sad about is that I won't be around to see it not unless they I come back as a ghost which I I am kind of planning on (laughs) have a check in see how it's all going (laughs) oh mate yeah yeah I I I do agree with you though in that regard because I mean I think archaeology is far more than digging and I myself haven't done a digging years either I was probably like 2015 my last one um and even at the time I know that there is this sort of veering towards not digging because it actually destroys the site so they're just doing the gps stuff so yeah um yeah you know and like you said there's so many facets of it of archaeology um all super interesting and obviously contemporary archaeology is kind of having a bit of a yeah it's becoming more noticed and that obviously doesn't always involve digging um i mean as for yourself 
you, because I know obviously you're really interested in the Neolithic and then obviously you do have a contemporary approach to it. So do you feel like you are a contemporary archaeologist or what's um, your stance on it? Because you, kind of yeah. you kind of blend the two, yeah, don't I, you? I, I, do you know, I, I don't really know what I am. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess I, um, I suppose um, if I had to try and describe myself, I, oh, I look, I would say that I'm, a contemporary art artist, sorry, a contemporary archaeologist who looks who looks through these these modern landscapes through a Neolithic lens. Yeah, that's a good description, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's um, that's how I would look at it. And because although archaeologists are opening up far more to interdisciplinary collaborations and so on. I guess I'm I'm very lucky to be able to work within within the Liminal Worlds project with um, not just historians and 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 and, and geologists and, and things like that, but writers, um, visual artists, sonic artists, all all manner of people. People that if I was perhaps working with within more traditional context it might not be uh, so easy to do working with these people it certainly allowed me enabled me to widen my gaze and to open up new lines of research mm. and stuff and and I think that um wasn't for combining my archaeological work with these these people and with archaeologist friends I, I I really don't think that my projects would be the way they are if that makes sense <laughs> yeah yeah I, yeah I know I get what you mean gives it another sort of like you're saying a, a, another lens to view yeah this, and bring everybody in if you know what I mean that yeah can't. yeah and I think because um the reason why I I mean I I really love the you know the contemporary mashing up the contemporary and the neolithic is public engagement is really it's always been really important to me whenever you know whether I, when i was working within museums or on open days for for archaeological digs and things getting the public involved has always been of key import to me and um and i think that working within contemporary contexts makes that even more accessible in a, yeah. in a sense because um, lots of people still sort of think that in order to engage with archaeology proper, <laughs> if there's such a thing as proper archaeology, um, you have to go and, and travel out into the wilds of Salisbury Plain and you don't. You know, archaeology is everywhere. It is you know, from the minute you go, you step out your front door, it's there. I think that's part of it, isn't it? Making it accessible to people that they realise that they can do this, they can enjoy exactly. it, like you say, on their doorstep. And projects like this bring it closer. Yeah, so. I hope so. And I think that's and I and and maybe that's why the underpasses a liminal places project has sort of um, gained the momentum that it has because most people 
live near to or know people that live near to underpasses or flyovers, um, caves. Could you, could you just quickly explain what that project is actually for the listeners? Yeah, of course I will. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, um, you know, um, the underpasses for me, they can be seen as liminal places because they they bear witness to the behaviours I mentioned earlier, the drug taking, drinking, communal gatherings and so on. Um, but also an underpass is is on the periphery of the everyday and uh, the different stratas of reality. And um, for me, underpasses are spaces where the everyday is challenged, where new identities and agendas can be forged, where all acts are significant, but also where interactions with forces, um, both benevolent and malevolent, take place. And for me, the underpass is a link between um, the routine every day and the more than human world. And for me, these spaces, they must be approached with caution, but that doesn't mean they should be avoided. And I started thinking about this as a project because I living in London now I can go out mooching um, you know when it's safe to do so and I was finding some absolutely amazing spaces and I was reconnecting even more strongly with my childhood in that sense and the craziness of being in this city I'm not a city person you know I grew up in rural contexts and spent most of my life within rural context but by going into these spaces I was finding solitude and comfort and I started posting images and videos onto my Twitter account during my my MLIT at UHI um, I took a, a module art and archaeology and um, one of the assignments was I had to create a short video which focused upon archaeology within a different light. So I decided to focus upon my my underpass ponderings. And uh, I did a 10-minute PowerPoint presentation. And this is pretty much how the project came into being. And um, as I said, I was posting things online. I started to get quite a lot of responses to them people asking questions and so on and then people send me pictures of their underpasses and 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 things so I just got thinking about it and I thought well we're all kind of in lockdown but a lot of people are still allowed to go out for short so this was lockdown one so most people were still allowed to go out for short walks and so on so I I started thinking well People are kind of down and fed up and looking for things to do. So why not we just try and have a bit of fun with some underpasses? So I was talking to my friend Badger North one day and she said, oh, I'd be well up for that. So I thought, why don't we make some stickers? So I created some underpasses, liminal places stickers. And I just put a tweet out. I can remember it now. It was one Sunday. And I said, look, I'm going to do some stickers looking for some people who might want to go 
with some stickers into local underpasses, put the stickers there, photograph them, give me the GPS coordinates and then just go back and have a look at them every couple of weeks for a few months and see if anything happens to these stickers, whether they're left alone or they're damaged or they're accessorised, so to speak. From an archaeological perspective, I, I suppose you would say whether they were venerated, desecrated or just left to be. So I thought, oh, we might get, you know, maybe 10 or 20 of my pals getting back to me saying, yeah, that sounds great. Well, it was bonkers. I, I actually had to turn my phone off for two days because it was just pinging continuously. <laughs> I ended up with just over 100 participants all around the world. So the fieldwork began in for UK and Europe mid-July, the rest of the world mid-August. And uh, data collection was to end in mid-October, mid-November, respectively. As I've just explained how I asked people to collect data for it. But everyone who participated, you know, they were sent out, made very specific that although the field work was, was being coordinated primarily through Twitter, this was archaeological research. And therefore, you know, it had to be undertaken following specific protocols and procedures, you know, just like any other field work. But, you know, there were clear cut aims and methodologies. And that although it's fun and, and, and stuff and learning is always important, that the field recording had to be, you know, had to be followed. The, the, you know, the guidelines had to be followed. And people really got on board with it. And, you know, everyone was going out to their sites and photographing them and sending back all the stuff to me. I was retweeting some of these images and this allowed the project to gain even further momentum. But for me as an archaeologist and, and someone into public archaeology in particular, what was really great it was it showed by retweeting these things and seeing the responses, it showed the participants that they were part of a team, a worldwide team, so to speak. And um, what I found really brilliant was that I began to notice that people who hadn't conversed with each other on Twitter before the project commenced, they'd now started following each other and were talking with each other about each other's underpasses and also the places where they, they lived, etc. you know, and Bill Numb and, you know, friendships were beginning to form through this project, which wonderful and it's lovely yeah it is and 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 for myself I also had loads of people you know a number who I'd never had any contact with before the project began were actively engaging with myself not just in regards to underpasses but but liminality and and archaeology in general it was being really beautiful I'm going to use that word because it has been to hear from friends and strangers alike who have told me that they are seeing their neighborhoods with fresh eyes that they really appreciate being able to interact with an archaeologist and feel that they're they're a valid part of a bona fide project mm. speaking as an archaeologist my passion for is you know not not just because my passion for the past present and future peoples um is 
is so strong but because I've all you know I've always felt that landscape and place the interconnectivity of the temporal and the material is for everyone and it's everywhere and and as I said earlier you know it's not just to be found in megalithic structures and dilapidated castles it is in front of you for me that's been a real joy of the project and and I have a number, a couple of participants in uh, Melbourne and Australia, and one of them, uh, Madeline, uh, who's awesome, she'd put uh, one of the stickers up under, I think it was uh, uh, a motorway flyover, if I remember correctly, um, in uh, a suburb of Australia, uh, of Melbourne, sorry, called Kensington. And uh, it was basically some person, some random person was out on a walk and had come across one of the stickers and um, this is what they posted to me. So they said, as I cross over the other side of the tracks, walking through the underpass, I notice this luminous sticker. It's a little like underpass inception. From what I gather, this is a global project. So I was like, blimey. So I, 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 contacted her and and just asked her how she'd heard about the project you know whether it was through a google search or a friend because at that point I didn't know if she was a friend of um one of my two participants and she responded with oh you know I was just curious so I used a google search plus searching via the hashtag on Instagram because um, she's not on Twitter and she said it's a really great project and it was like oh my god this is awesome because yeah it shows that the fact that this we you know this tiny wee project sticker had not only been noticed by some random person passing through its vicinity but it, it had you know it intrigued them enough to undertake a web search and post about it on social media, well, it, it just highlighted to me that the dissemination of research projects out into the public sphere, you know, it, it doesn't ha- it doesn't always need to be some huge convoluted large scale enterprise in order to capture people's imaginations. And and so yeah, yeah no, it, just- it is amazing what. A little sticker and word of mouth can do, isn't it? Just to yeah, and and spread something so far and uh, and get people interested. I suppose that's the thing, though. Like, I, you do when you go under underpasses, though, you do stop to look at the graffiti and the weird things. So yeah, uh, you know that probably is what caught our attention, yeah. and that's how you know. And and that's going to be interesting because the next phase, which is hopefully the field work, will be starting in April. Um, COVID permitting and stuff is going to be looking at aesthetics within underpasses um Mm. so I'm I'm hoping that that is going to generate some really great data and also discussions um I mean at at the moment we've at there's actually a a further three phases planned the aesthetics within underpasses physical and social segregation within underpasses and communal gatherings 
um, I'm actually analysing and interpreting the phase one data at present <laughs> alongside all the other crazy things I'm trying to get sorted um, for, the, for the overall project as a whole. And, and I've, I've really enjoyed phase one, but I'm really excited um, about the upcoming phases um, because I think um, with these, we, we are going to be able to dive in even deeper into these um, connections um, between the contemporary and the Neolithic and really get some you know, discourse going and um, ideas and, and discussions. I suppose that's a good segue, to be honest, for the last one, because we've discussed uh, the, limp, the underpasses, the dialect of the hum, future ghosts, and then you've got the paranoid architecture one. Oh, God, yeah, paranoid yeah. architecture. So, yeah, let, tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, what that's about. Okay, so, yeah, um, paranoid architecture. Back in 2019, as, as I mentioned earlier, I really like the writings of J.G. Ballard and, and he's had a, a pretty profound effect on my life um, since adolescence. My friend, Dr. Kenny Brophy, who's uh, on Twitter as the um, Urban Prehistorian, he does a blog post um, called the Urban Prehistorian, funnily enough. And, yeah. <laughs> and he did a post titled Hyper Prehistory. It was, uh, it was fantastic, um, absolutely brilliant. And in this, uh, he discussed a number of um, aspects of the Neolithic being propelled into not just the present, but the future uh, through the writings of people such as uh, Marc Auger and his book, Non-Places. But he also talked a lot about a book called um, Applied Balladianism, which uh, is written um, by a lovely chap called Simon Sellers. And in this book, um, Simon explores lots of different facets of the subjects of the books, their parallel universe um, and architecture is discussed uh, amongst many other things. And there is a chapter called Zones, which I was immediately drawn to. Kenny had said to me, you've got to read this book. So um, I was immediately drawn to Zones and I dive back into that book frequently because I see new things every time I read it. And anyway, so between Kenny's blog post and Simon's book, I'd, I'd just finished rereading High Rise and um, I was having a chat with Kenny one night and it just kind of dawned on me. Um, I'd been doing some research purely within the Neolithic at that point about the social structures, so to speak. For anyone who, who hasn't formally studied later prehistory, um, especially the Neolithic or, or, or informally studied it, um, sorry, didn't mean to sound um, sort of elitist or anything there. Um, there's a, a lot, a lot has been written about the Neolithic as this really great, happy time where everyone got on and built monuments, and it was all great. A bit like um, a prehistoric Brady Bunch sort of thing. But the archaeology itself, the physical archaeology for myself and a number of other people, is actually showing something quite different. There is a distinct possibility of physical and social segregation, certainly manifesting in 
later Neolithic uh, communal complexes such as Avebury and potentially Stonehenge and other sites, uh, not just throughout UK, but Europe. I also think that we can see this segregation within communal domestic dwellings. We have a greater understanding now as to you know, how the communal monuments were constructed and the time taken to create them and so on. But we are still lacking um, significant research into how individuals sort of live together, um, you know, socially. Now, archaeologists such as Leslie McFadden, Jim Leary and David Field um, have, uh, amongst others, have um, looked at, you know, possible societal issues manifesting through monument building. But for myself, I think there's a very real notion that the people of the Neolithic lived within a society in flux, um, a society where discord, mistrust, friction and hostility even permeated, perhaps within all levels of domestic, communal and regional life. This statement that the the late Neolithic was a some sort of halcyon existence for its inhabitants, both locally and on a broader scale, may not be true. And for myself, um, having studied communal uh, dwellings, uh, communities of the Northern Isles, especially Orkney, with uh, Professor Colin Richards, between us we started having some quite serious thoughts around the structural makeup of Scarabray. Um, on mainland Orkney with regards to social distrust and segregation. I, I know Scarabray is very well known to a lot of people, but just in case not everyone listening knows what Scarabray is. Um, so it was under sand um, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. It was it was constructed, I think, oh God, roughly around four, four and a half thousand years ago. That is off the top of my head. It was only uncovered about a century ago um, there was really drastic storms and the sand that had been covering was um, removed um, naturally and this stone and turf built village interconnecting small hamlet was uncovered these dwellings within I mean we don't it's highly like that the whole of Scarabray has not been wasn't uncovered by these storms um, that a, a significant proportion of it still dwells underneath the sa- the sand. Of those that have been uncovered, these buildings, these homes, for want of a better term, are all interconnecting. Lots of interpretations uh, were saying that, oh, this is because it was an egalitarian society and and socially cohesive. Whereas Colin and myself and others are saying that, no, perhaps that isn't the case. I suppose, for want of a better term, I have a slightly more sinister look on it in a sense that I would suggest that it's to keep a constant eye on their neighbours. Having grown up in a village, <laughs> I know what that can be like, people literally knowing what you've done before you've done it. And um, the community at Scara Bray, and I would suggest other communities, would have been aware of what their neighbours were doing, when they were doing it, when they were home or away, and who they were associating with. Scarabray, for me, sort of suddenly took me 
back to Ballard's high rise, you've got this apartment block, which is seen as embodying social cohesion in the future. But hierarchies exist within this utopia. Poorer residents had to live on on the lower scales of the building complex and have restricted access. And then later in the book, no access to communal amenities, Um, for example, the swimming pool in the book. So I'm looking at that and putting that alongside Scarra Bray. And I, and I started thinking this control of movement, although occurring, you know, some 5,000 years, four and a half, 5,000 years ago, it's not so different to what was occurring with not only within not only Ballard's book, but also what is occurring within um, these luxury housing complexes, especially the high rise complexes that we, we have around the world, um, especially in, uh, in the UK and London. I was reading uh, something in The Guardian that was posted onto Twitter by uh, Will Jennings yesterday that, you know, in recent years, all these new builds, they're, they're, um, up until recently, it was compulsory that you had to have a certain number of social housing units within them. And there's been numerous reports of people living within the social housing, within these luxury complexes, have been restricted from using the in-house amenities such as gyms, pools and the outside leisure areas, as well as having to use separate backdoor entrances, for want of a better term. So for me, the control of of movement equates at Scarra Bray equates with what is happening now. The diff, the separate entrances, restricted access to leisure playground. Um, we've also got that the where people, as I argue, were being watched um, throughout the Neolithic. I would suggest both within um, the uh, social. Um, context of the the building programs, um, but also within the domestic. Um, to me, that is no different than the CCTV surveillance that the 20th and 21st century social housing tenants have had to endure. That's a rather convoluted way of explaining the project, um, but um, so. But again, it it ties. So it's in. kind of again you you've got that Neolithic lens on. Ballard's work, yeah, and, exactly. Uh, and, housing um, structures today. So that, and this is something I'm currently writing up as well. Um, we are hoping we've been talking about um, hosting a Ballard and archaeology conference for over a year now, but obviously it's all been a bit um, uh, up in the air <laughs> with stuff. Yeah. But hopefully, yeah. we will get round to that at some point. You have these spaces that, you know, that ties in with the liminal again, because, you know, you have these, um, these breaks in between these, these, these thresholds. You could look at those in the sense that people move differently within these housing blocks. I mean, either they move differently because they are completely segregated and they are disallowed from walking within certain parts um, of these spaces. So that's how they're defined. But also because even if they are allowed into the so-called communal spaces within these 
um, complexes. So if if their kids are allowed to use the playgrounds, if if the adults are allowed to um, use the gyms and 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 so on, they move within those those landscapes, those kind of very differently. They might not even notice it themselves. It, it could be completely you know, unconscious of them or, or at the least subconscious that they will move differently. Perhaps they won't move as confidently. Perhaps they will feel that they are trespassing even though they're not. And for me, this is a highly liminal aspect. And, uh, you know, and I hope that makes sense. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a good explanation. I think, you know, you've summed up all your projects nicely and kind of linked it back around to the liminal aspect. Um, so I think that'd be a good place to end. But if people want to find out more, you know, let, let them know what your blog is and your Twitter handle and all of that. If, if um anything I've spoken about today <laughs> sparks any form of interest um, <laughs> or uh, despair and you would like to perhaps learn more about it or voice concerns, uh, you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter uh, link or handle, I'm not quite sure what they're called, is ladyliminal1 and both the L's are capitalised. I am on Instagram but not to as great an extent Instagram handle is uh, Lambert5099. I will just double check. Yes, it is. And that's all lowercase. And the we are currently in the midst of constructing an Uber website that will house all four of the projects alongside um, some other really fab stuff. This is going to be called, um, it's not live yet, so please don't click on the link because you won't get anything. Um, it's going live in April and the um, link will be www.liminalworlds.org and as well as incorporating all of my analysis and interpretations of the various projects, we will also be actively seeking people who have engaged with the projects and who have maybe hopefully been inspired to upload any of their stuff, whether they've been inspired to create art or music or written piece, anything, you know, if, if, and that can be within the context of the underpasses project or the hum, paranoid architecture, future ghosts, or liminality in general, you know, so that will be going live in April. And we are also very lucky to be having some specially commissioned pieces going online over the next few months and hopefully years from some really, really exciting people. I can name two at the moment. One will be Alice Gorman, um, who is the archaeologist of the International Space Station, who is uh, creating a piece about the hum of the space station itself. And Matt Colhoun, who's an author, an editor, who wrote Egress on, I always get this wrong, on Morning Melancholy and Mark Fisher. And he is currently creating an absolutely insane piece on uh, buildings that are found within quarries. So, and I will now stop talking. Thank you. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's, I think it's going to be a really, really cool website. And, it, and I think you. it's good because I know you originally you were thinking just the underpasses, but I think it's good to just yep. put them all together, yeah, to be honest. Uh, because they all link, as the listeners will have found out now, 
Um, yeah. So just having it yeah. all in one place and, you know, these articles yeah. and that, getting everyone involved, I think it's going to be great. Thank you. And yeah, and that was um, that was the web constructor who actually suggested, because for my thing of studying future ghosts and tech and stuff, I am actually the the worst person with technology <laughs> i just it just goes very badly wrong when i come close to buttons and and uh things. so but he suggested it and of course you know he's the brains of the outfit for this and um yeah and and i'm really happy that we're doing that um not just because financially it, it, it it's um really helpful but like you said um they are all interconnected and what I'm really hoping is as the research on all of these projects progresses and more of that goes online that people who visit the site um, will see the the connections the interconnections and hopefully you know um, maybe form different connections of their own and and bring those to light put them on the platform because you know Mm. this website these projects yes I facilitate them but they're not about me they're about these landscapes and they're about the people who inhabit these landscapes and the participants without those people it would just be me sat in my room (laughs) Um, I'd be back to being a child again looking up at the pylons and just hoping to connect so yeah it's it is really important these these belong to the people and and that not me so there we have it i hope you enjoyed today's episode with rebecca lambert and if you like the sound of her stuff don't forget to go and check her out for anything else sense of place podcast related please head over to senseofplacepod.com you can find links to ko-fi patreon twitter so forth there other than that that's all from me so i hope you have a great week and i will speak to you again soon